This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We'll continue our discussion now about uh, Hamilton's HSR taking over the LRT. And there are a number of hurdles that have now uh, have to be crossed or, or, or jumped over. After the vote yesterday at uh, Hamilton City Hall and the special GIC and the LRT committee, councillors agreeing to uh, at least move the discussion ahead. And we'll expect a final vote to full ratification at City Hall on August 18th. And if that goes ahead, and I don't think there's going to be any issue that it will go ahead, then it's off to the province. Then it's off to Metrolinx to say, all right, can we include the HSR in the official LRT master plan? Can we remove from the RFQ process, that request for qualifications process, the maintenance and operation part of it? So then we'll just need a, a design and a builder and the financial aspects to be taken care of. And we'll take care of the rest, i.e. operation and maintenance. But there are, as I said, some hurdles. So let's bring in um, City Councilor Lloyd Ferguson. He's uh, Ward 12 for the City of Hamilton. Lloyd, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks, Rick. Thanks for joining us today. So your thoughts on uh, the HSR operating the LRT, or at least the proposal to do so. What what avenue are you uh, on right now? Well, I posed the motion yesterday because uh, there's been a literally years of debate about this LRT, and I thought we were across the finish line and finally got a, a green light um, a few months ago to go ahead with the project, and then this note of motion uh, comes out of left field yesterday. And I'm concerned now that it's carried is that it puts the project at risk. Uh, the first risk that I see is that um, uh, it's going to delay the, the process now because we have to start procurement all over again. We have to write new specs. We have to come up with our own costing for operation and maintenance. And uh, so it'll delay the project. Our intent was to very uh, carefully have this thing awarded before the next provincial election because if a different government gets elected who has a different view on LRT, they could kill the project uh, with a simple resolution through the House. And uh, this will not be out now before the next municipal or provincial election. And quite frankly, probably won't be out before the next municipal election. So there could be a number of candidates running on an anti-LRT vote and the project could get killed at that time. So the person who moved the motion was a big advocate for LRT, but now, and, and so were some of the people who voted for it. And, and, um, uh, and now it puts that whole schedule at risk, which puts us through the risk of a new election and what that may or may not bring. Uh, the, the second uh, risk is that it, it's a vote that will be ratified at council saying that Hamilton operate and maintain the system. If the province simply says no and um, it becomes a poison pill, to rescind that motion will need a two-thirds majority of council. That's our rules of order. And we've never had a resolution yet as it relates to LRT that gets two-thirds of the members to support a motion. So it's risky that you can get that. And, and, and the province could very well say no to one or both to operate or maintain. And the third and final one that bothers me the most is we don't know the cost. Uh, under the current agreement, we have the right to approve the operating cost after the bids are in. And so we know before we even put a shovel in the ground what the operating cost will be. Now that we're going to take that on, it'll be unknown. So the project will get built and we don't know the operating costs uh, or we don't have a feel for the operating cost right now. And so, you know, we don't know how to operate trains as an HSR. We operate buses, so there's a steep learning curve. You know, it's going to take a lot of research to find out what it will cost to uh, operate and maintain them. And and so uh, we won't be able to make that decision before we make the final go decision, 
which was supposed to happen sometime early spring next year. So for those three reasons, uh, and they're all risk-related, and, and quite frankly, government shouldn't take risk because we're dealing with taxpayer money. Uh, I had trouble with this motion yesterday. You brought up uh, a number of uh, very intriguing and interesting points. Uh, maybe we'll tackle one uh, one at a time. Uh, project at risk. Uh, obviously, there's uh, maybe a sense around the council table that uh, if uh, the Liberals don't retain power uh, through the next provincial election, that there might be an appetite to kill this project. Are you getting a sense from either the well, NDP or know, the PCs? Quite frankly, I haven't heard Patrick Brown come out with a clear, definitive answer. I've heard the NDP say they would, they would continue with it. I've heard, certainly heard the Liberals say it. But you don't know where the PCs are, uh, are going to stand on this. You know, Patrick Brown's been pretty quiet about the election so far. And I know uh, Donna Scully's giving serious consideration to running into uh, one of the, the new riding out in, in Hamilton. She's very much opponent of the um, uh, of the LRT and could be very influential in a new conservative government if that's formed and if she wins. And, and so there's the risk associated with that. So um, it's, it's just a risk we didn't need to take. And but now it's in our lap. Uh, this process, as you said, uh, delays everything. Uh, I guess the RFQ process has to restart right from the beginning. You have to because you know if you're pulling out the operation and maintenance, because it'd be a whole different consortiums that would get formed. Now there wouldn't be an operator or maintenance uh, contractor like a Bombardier, or there's lots of others that do that work too. That won't be in a consortium because if the Hamilton Street Railway takes on that uh, that task. Can you shorten the RFQ time frame so you're still within that provincial election uh, time frame? Well, probably not, because we also have to come up with our own spec about uh, how we're going to operate and maintain it, and our staff haven't done that. They didn't need to do it because it was going to be outsourced. And it was uh, just by extending the train through to um, Eastgate Square, uh, put that time right at its max now. And to add this element to it, uh, the report we got yesterday, it's, no, they can't be ready before the uh, the next provincial spring, ready to award a contract. Because while you may shorten the RFQ, because they've been through it once, you still have to go through the RFP process, which requests for proposals from the three shortlisted consortiums. And, and there's a lot of work to put in those bids together. You need at least three, if not four months, for the consortiums to do that, because they have to do at least a 30% design to be able to come up with costs. They have to, um, you know, then cost this whole thing. And it's a billion-dollar project. That takes a lot of time. So you can't shorten that or you'd run another risk is that uh, they would put high numbers to it because they weren't able to scientifically put it together. We're chatting with uh, Lloyd Ferguson here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott this week. Uh, cost is obviously a, a, an intriguing factor as well. Any guesstimate or estimate on what the added cost would be? I had no idea. No idea. And I know some members who supported this motion yesterday were very concerned about the operating costs, which puzzled me why they support it, because we would know 100% what the operating cost is once the bids are received in the spring. And we would have the opportunity then to approve or reject. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think it was a move by a number of members of council who were very supportive of unions in general, and they wanted to support the, uh, the, uh, the amalgamated transit union. But they have other avenues that could take. I mean, every... Um, employee in the province of Ontario has a right for representation. And as long as ATU could get 50% of those um, transit operators and maintenance workers to uh, vote in favor of being unionized, it's automatically done. And then they would just negotiate agreement with whoever the operator is. Plus, you know, I've, I've, 
my previous life, I used to build these mega projects, and and we would have unions approach us, and uh, we would make arrangements with them to uh, make sure that there would be the operator if we win the project. So ATU could do that also, go meet with the three shortlisted consortiums and make arrangements to be the operators before the bid even goes in, because that gives certainty to the bid for um, the um, the people who will be the consortium. But secondly, it would get a nice little check mark beside their name because they're going to use the the Alameda Transit Union, which seems to be the desire of uh, some mem- most members of council. We had Councillor uh, Matthew Green on the program Tuesday, uh, who brought forward uh, the motion, and he uh, w- one of the many things that he pointed to was you know having that local oversight of the LRT if if HSR is involved is a big pro. Um, would we still have a little bit of that if they're not involved? I'm not sure we want it uh, because it's risky to take that on. Just outsource it. You put a performance spec in place, which is part of the RFP, but how often the trains have to run and, and how you know how they're able to maintain the schedules with penalties if they, do, if they are not maintaining those schedules. So you write a performance spec to ensure that you get the performance you're looking for, but you don't take any of the operating risk. Is there is some hesitation knowing what we have gone through and are still going through with the stadium? Uh, is there is some hesitation to to ship this off to the private sector? Uh, you know, we did the same thing at um, City Hall renovations. The stadium thing, then we we, uh, we did our best to try to influence that, but the, the owner was ultimately Infrastructure Ontario. We assumed that once it was finished. But it didn't cost the taxpayers any money. Yeah, it was embarrassing to have speakers falling. Yes, it could have hurt somebody, which is terrible. And yes, the TV screens uh, were indoor TVs that were put in the concourses and all failed. But uh, that didn't cost the taxpayers one cent because it was on a deficiency list. We retained enough funds from the the infrastructure Ontario to make sure that once we took possession and outstanding deficiencies were there, that they would pay to get it fixed, which they have. And and so uh, while it was a pain, we still have that control of, of the money, which uh, can have a big influence or allow us to go in and do it with our own resources and charge them back for it. And, and uh, you know, it wouldn't have changed the decision about where the stadium location is. I know that's still a contentious issue for a number of people in the city of Hamilton, including myself. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't a great experience. And yes, we didn't have a lot of control, except we controlled the money where you can influence with that. And again, recap, Lloyd, you're, you're saying that this is a, a risky move to uh, to have HSR uh, operate and maintain LRT. Not necessarily uh, uh, HSR. It's having the city do it rather than a private company where right. you know the cost up front. And if you delay this project, it happened in Ottawa. Uh, they went out for an RFP for, uh, uh, this is two council terms ago, uh, went out for uh, um, an RFP got a contractor, signed them up, a consortium, went through a municipal election. A number of candidates ran on an anti-LRT vote. Um, They won. They canceled it. They had to pay a big penalty. I understand it's the 50 to $75 million range to cancel the contract. And three years later, they put it back in again. And so we run the same risk going through a municipal election. There could be some anti-LRT candidates run. And then, of course, all the... Uh, misinformation can get the, all the assumptions of, of, that can get out there. It's hard to educate all the voters because we go through days and days and days of information sessions to understand this this uh, 
process and understand the train and understand the cost to try to message that out during a campaign, you could end up with a whole new council, which could cancel it, and then the, the project is gone. So that's a risk you take by delaying it past the next provincial municipal election. This motion obviously passed at Wednesday's GIC in a special LRT meeting. Do you expect the vote to be any different come the full council meeting on August 18th? Typically, it's not unless something dramatic, dramatic changes. If the province would come out and say, no, you can't do it, it's a poison pill for the project, it might change. But apart from that, no, I fully expect it'll carry. Councillor Ferguson, thanks for the time today. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, but right now, in an effort to reflect the earnings gap between men and women, an Australian coffee shop is giving priority seating to women and is charging an optional 18% man tax to male customers. Money raised from the tax at Handsome Her, it's a vegan cafe in Melbourne, uh, are donated to women's charities. Uh, one of the owners is Alex O'Brien. He says, quote, uh, We're bringing it to the forefront to people's minds. I like that it is making men stop and question their privilege a little bit. Uh, some shoppers have criticized the shop on social media and are calling for a boycott. So let's bring in Maureen Kilgore. She's an associate professor in the Department of Business and Administration at the University of Winnipeg and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Maureen, how are you? Hi, fine, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. What do you make of this story? What do you make of this man tax? Well, it's sort of interesting. I mean, I, it wouldn't necessarily be something I would do if I had my own cafe, but I can sort of understand their motivation for it. Because I think, you know, from what I understand, what they're trying to do is draw attention to an issue that won't go away, despite, you know, t- you know from the United Nations community talking about it in the 1950s, Canada, for example, having legislation to address pay equity and since the 1980s and Australia has done uh, a lot of sort of intervention to try and eliminate pay uh, inequalities within companies so they may have just gotten fed up and thought oh let's do this and and and, you know let's see if this can draw attention to the issue which they've been very successful at as far as uh, Twitter goes. No doubt about it and it's interesting to note that it is an optional tax, so I I guess the men don't actually have to pay, but if they do, that uh, extra 18% goes to women's charities, which I think is a neat idea. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you start looking at, like, they have three rules on their chalkboard, and I'm sure they never expected to get international attention, but, (laughs) um, you know, I think the three rules are sort of interesting. The first is women have priority seating, and we can talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. The second one is men will be charged this 18% premium, which is optional once every four weeks sort of thing just to kind of draw attention to that gender pay gap. And then the third rule is respect goes both ways, which is sort of uh, goes without saying. But, um, the, you know, the the idea that they're uh, making a donation is sort of interesting because anyone in Canada, and your Ontario listeners would know this as well, is whether you go to Canadian Tire, Costco, uh, Safeway, Sobeys, uh, uh, Superstore, Loblaws, um, any of those companies, every time, winners, uh, every time you go to the cash there, they, that that company is collecting money, optionally, obviously, uh, to donate to their uh, preferred charity. So, so that model is not unusual. So the fact that they're saying, yeah, we're we're going to ask people, men only in this situation, uh, to to give a, an optional donation. Um, first of all, to get them to reflect on the pay gap, and secondly, just to target sort of. Uh, charities that uh, help women. Uh, so it, it's not an unusual thing that 
companies do that we see in the private sector. Mm-hmm. We've both mentioned the priority seating, and I, I think for women, I think this uh, has infuriated more people than the actual man tax because now people are alleging, you know, this is discriminatory. You're basically shoving men to, you know, a different section of, of the cafe and, and having that priority seating to women. Yes, and you know what? And, uh, you know, I have two teenage kids here. We're sort of chatting about that. And and I think they probably made a mistake with that because um, that, as you say, there's probably more reaction to that than the, this optional sort of donation that they're asking people to make. Um, the, the seating issue is, is touchy, and um, especially, you know, if we look at the Indigenous population of Australia, kind of the, the Aboriginal population of Canada, African Americans, history of slavery, like excluding people from sitting down. If we think of Rosa Parks sitting on the bus mm-hmm. or or Violet Desmond in Nova Scotia, like not being able to sit in the movie theater. So this idea that you're actually reserving seating for certain groups of people, um, I don't think it would hold up in, in under Canadian human rights law, and it probably wouldn't hold up in um, Australian human rights law. Uh, it's, a, it's different than, for example, if you're taking public transit and you see the sign at the front that says, um, you know, there's you know seating reserved for... I don't even know if they just have a picture now, like a pregnant woman, for right. example, yeah. or people, you know, hunched over with a cane or or people with disabilities using wheelchairs, things like that. So that's a completely different thing that you're saying, oh, you know, if someone like that comes in and they, all, you know, say we have a stand-up bar with just a couple of seats, we might say, you know what, if someone who's disabled or, you know, nine months pregnant comes in, maybe we would let them have the seat. So it's a little bit of a different thing. And I don't know if it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, again, on their own little chalkboard in their little cafe. And, and from all you know, the photos, it looks like a really tiny cafe. Mm-hmm. But it probably was not a smart thing for them to do because, you know, it, 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 we have to be very careful when we start, stop uh, serving certain groups. Or, and even within Canada, though, we have uh, abilities under our Human Rights Act to, to make distinctions. For example, a company could say, I want to do a program to target uh, youth unemployment. So we're going to create some jobs that are targeted for the under 25, like sort of training jobs or, inter- in, you know, internships and stuff like that. Or a housing co-op that might say, oh, um, you know, for from our housing co-op, we want to just reserve a few uh, units that are for women escaping abusive relationships or for men escaping abusive relationships, for that matter. So those are a little bit different than just to say, no, you know, no man can have a seat here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 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 so I think they probably made a public relations mistake. And you see that a lot. You know, you, you see it with companies that launch a corporate responsibility initiative. Earl did something recently with meat, and it sort of backfired because it just doesn't kind of wash with the general population. We're chatting with uh, Maureen Kilgore, Associate Professor in the Department of Business and Administration at the University of Winnipeg here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick in for Scott today. Wouldn't have it made a little bit more sense to give women an 18% discount? Well, you know what, that's that's a good point, because one of the things that's being addressed a bit more and more in, in the UK, especially in England, is this, and women, women will relate to this, is like haircuts. So I've got short hair right now, and... Uh, um, I, w- I went to a new hairdresser in, in the neighborhood and said, you know, what's what's the price for the haircut? And they, of course, like 60, 80. I don't even know what it was. Right. And, um, yeah. Oh, my 14-year-old son, what about for him? And it's like, oh, 20. It's like, well, his hair is actually longer than mine. So um, so there's there's a whole movement uh, under human rights law in, in the UK, for example, saying, no, you cannot um, uh, discriminate in services, in who you admit into your establishment, 
um, in who you're serving as a customer. And you can't also you can also have not sort of gender based or any other ground of discrimination based uh, pricing uh, differences. So, as, as I said, women are familiar with the haircut, so we'd like a discount or you know buying a white dress shirt, uh, so you can men you know pay much less for just a simple white dress shirt than women, and for dry cleaning those white dress shirts as well. So. I think companies really need to look at, uh, you know, the, the pricing structures and, 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 you know, try and eliminate as much as possible, not only pay inequalities, but also uh, inequalities in the service they're providing to their uh, populations. I'm glad you brought up the haircut because I've heard the argument that, you know, women pay more for haircuts or, or, or whatever they do, uh, you know, with their hair, whether it's coloring that, because they do it less often than men. A man will go to, you know, a barber shop or, or a hair salon, uh, I don't know, eight, eight to ten times a year. I'm just throwing out a number out there. And, and mm-hmm. a woman might go about four times a year, and, and hence the price uh, fluctuation. I don't really buy that, but, I mean, that's that's what I've been told. Yeah, and you 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 will have some hairstylists say, well, it takes more. You know, women are more fussy and this kind of thing. But <laughs> yeah. I think you know, you know, and for any action that any private sector company takes in their business, as long as they can justify it, right? They can say, no, no, we do use. You know, this person requires different services, or they're asking for like a you know more time in the chair. The man takes three minutes. The woman, like, we're kind of doing a little bit more. So of course, but I think with any of these initiatives that a company decides to do. For corporate responsibility or just for their own, you know, business goals is you have to kind of take a step back and go, does this make, first of all, business sense? And does it comply with the law, you know? And can we justify it? Can we justify charging more for this type of haircut? Yeah. Fascinating story. I'm, I'm eager to see how it's going to turn out in terms of how they do from here on in and whether they're going to change anything. But it is, uh, it is a pretty interesting story. Maureen, thanks for the time today. Okay, thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We're going to talk about the fluctuating gas prices in town. You know, I've been driving around town because if you're like me and you're kind of nearing empty, you're driving around and you're looking for the lowest possible gas price. And uh, and and that's what I see. And if, if I see one that's lower than the other, I'll go and stop in there. I, I don't really uh, discriminate in terms of uh, gas stations. I do have my favorites in, in my neighborhood. But if I see a price that's two or three or four cents lower than the other guy, I'm going to go to the lower the the, the lower uh, gas station to get that that price. So um, so I'm going around town. I'm on E. Uh, you know, I have my digital, you know, I've, I've 26 kilometers left before I run uh, completely empty. You know, you start biting the nails, you start to sweat, thinking, uh, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to get uh, to where I have to be because I'm going to run out of fuel. Um, but I did the calculations, and I think I was okay. So this morning, I filled up, uh, put $15 into the tank. It, it didn't fill it up, obviously. Uh, at a dollar, I think it was a dollar eleven or a dollar thirteen. I can't recall. Uh, but yesterday it was a dollar seven, and I was shocked, thinking, "What? I, I'm not going to pay a dollar seven for a liter of gas? Come on, I'll wait till tomorrow." And uh, and I got dinged, a buck eleven or a buck thirteen, whatever it was. I was so shocked I can't even remember what uh, the price was. But I've seen uh, over the last day or so, really the uh, the lowest being ninety five nine. I saw that online, um, and and the highest a dollar fifteen. And so why the fluctuation in gas prices, I have no idea. So let's bring on the guy who does have a clue and might be the only guy in the universe who understands gas prices. That's Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic and analyst with GasBuddy.com, who is joining us now on the show. Dan, how are you? 
I'm fine, Rick. Good talking to you on this fine Thursday afternoon. Yes, it is. Um, I'm not sure if you've noticed the price fluctuation, but I was online earlier today after paying uh, upwards of a dollar thirteen a liter for gasoline. I saw some some stations as low as ninety five nine, others as high as one fifteen. W- what gives? Well, <laughs> a lot of competition at the retail level only, Rick. Uh, they all pay the same pretty much for wholesale prices of gasoline. If I'm a gas station owner today, uh, my base price is about 65.7 cents. Uh, I then have to add my federal tax of 10 cents, and I also have to pay my provincial tax of 14.7 uh, cents. And of course, in that 65.7 is the 4 cent a liter, 4.1, 4.2 cent a liter uh, uh, cap and trade tax. So all that brings me to uh, uh, really a subtotal uh, of uh, 90, 91 cents a liter. But by the time I add my HST, which comes to about 11 point, call it 11.7, 11.8 cents a liter, I'm up to about a dollar two as a gas station, a dollar 1.9, somewhere around there to buy my gasoline. And ironically, if I'm looking on our Gas Buddy website at Hamilton prices, the first thing that comes up, of course, are the cheapest prices in Hamilton. And there we see a number of uh, gas stations selling gas in the 101 uh, range. And so that really explains why most are selling gasoline, if it's very cheap, at $1.9 at the cost at which they're buying it. Um, there obviously is a catch. The catch is, you know, if they make money elsewhere, selling diesel, perhaps selling more premium gasoline, perhaps uh, offering whatever is available in their stores, or maybe covering their costs based on discounts. But most Pioneer stations I'm seeing here, uh, you know, it, uh, on Woodward Avenue, over on King Street West, over on Queenston Road, Barton, uh, they're all at a dollar one point eight, dollar point eight, dollar one point six. So that really explains the low side. The lo- the high side really are gas stations that are charging a retail margin of about ten cents a liter plus HST, and that's really the only competition, the only difference you see among various brands of gas across Ontario. So the gas stations right now who are selling below 102 or 101 in that range, they're they're uh, really losing money on, on their gasoline and, and trying to make it elsewhere? Uh, they're getting what's called dealer support. Okay. So whoever's supplying them could be a refinery, could be a job or a middle player. Uh, it could be actually the company that serves uh, as a... Uh, as a go-between between a refiner and, and gas stations and is making or getting a discount of three or four cents a liter uh, selling large volumes of gas. That's the way the business has turned, and it's really turned so much so that big companies like Esso, who were obviously the number one nameplate for gas stations across Canada for a, <laughs> virtually a century, have sold all their gas stations to other partners, other players like Parkland, who owns Pioneer, or more importantly, Kushtard. If that name doesn't sound familiar to some people, uh, maybe Max Milk and Becker's, because that's the company that owns it. So the money that's now being made in the, ga- in the gas station is inside the C-store, inside their own stores versus selling gasoline. There's not a lot of money to be made selling gas, unless, of course, you're a refiner, at which point, Rick, you're picking up probably a cool 10 to 12 cents a litre net turning crude into gasoline. Well, uh, on the uh, website, uh, gasbuddy.com, it says the average uh, price in uh, the Hamilton area is 109.4. The lowest price is 99.7, which I would have taken earlier today in a heartbeat. Uh, But at 109 and anyone higher, can we accuse them of gouging? Not at all. Uh, Most of those stations may be independents. Again, they're buying their gas for 102. So 
if I'm buying uh, from in my refiner or my seller, whoever is providing me gasoline for a dollar two taxes in, you present me with a credit card, as in which half motorists, a good number of motorists do, that's another two to three cents. Now I'm up to a dollar four. You have to be able to recover about three to three and a half cents a liter just in order to make your pay at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, if your volumes are 15 or 20,000 liters at three cents a liter, uh, you can see why making three to four hundred bucks a day barely costs, you know, covers the cost of uh, paying for the electricity to turn on your pumps, uh, pay your overhead, pay your taxes, pay your utilities, et cetera. So right. it's not a lot of money at a dollar nine. And it certainly is no money at a dollar two. And the only ones who can engage in that dollar two behavior are people who can make money selling you something else. Uh, so, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you see gas prices are low, great, wonderful, fantastic. Um, I see it quite often uh, over there in Ontario Street as you come off of QEW in St. Catharines, uh, Pioneer and Esso, love to sell gasoline below cost. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. But if they're so generous with the people over there, why aren't they generous with the rest of us? Mm-hmm. Why don't they lose money deliberately, strategically? It does deal with retail competition gone mad to some extent. It looks like a bit of a gas war. But at the end of the day, only the giants survive. When they survive, they drive prices up, not down. And is that uh, example or or scenario the same as from community to community? So the prices here in Hamilton are going to be different than those in Toronto and certainly Burlington and Oakville and and Niagara? Yeah, it really depends on the players. Um, You know, uh, Hamilton is a hotspot. Vopac is a very small uh, wholesaler that brings in gasoline from all sorts of places around the world. They don't necessarily buy their gasoline from any of the big players. So that represents a modicum of competition at the refinery or at the wholesale level, something you don't see in places like Toronto, uh, in other communities where it's really, you know, uh, a locked shop, if you will, and everyone charges, you know, the 10 cent retail margin. Everyone covers their costs. Uh, but in places like Hamilton, St. Catharines, Niagara, where you have a presence of pretty, pretty strong independents who've been around for a long time, surprise, surprise, the big players always try to knock them out by undercutting uh, uh, their uh, their wholesale price by offering gasoline at the retail level, which is sometimes less than the wholesale price. By the way, that kind of a- uh, outcome, and it's very hard to prove in Canada, be competitive for a large player to engage in a behavior anywhere that would see the snuffing out of an independent uh, gas retailer. That's why they thrive in the United States and Canada. They've gone the way of the dodo bird. We're chatting with Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, analyst with GasBuddy.com. Check out the website, GasBuddy.com. Global events uh, tend to uh, affect gas prices uh, here and there. Uh, U.S. and North Korea's maybe the most publicized global event we've had in a long, long time. Is that having any impact on, on the price of gasoline? Not yet. It was this morning. Uh, we saw gasoline moving up almost three cents a gallon, good for a one penny increase uh, by Sunday. That has since uh, made a U-turn, reversed courses, and of course, uh, it's not likely we're going to see much of a change in the pumps, saving except retailers shedding or what I call retail shenanigans, throwing away their uh, their retail uh, operating costs, their retail margins. Uh, there are other factors, though, that I think could keep uh, prices for oil and more importantly gasoline propped up that's of course hurricane season in the u.s gulf coast uh there is a lot of likelihood of more hurricanes not less according to the national oceanographic uh atmospheric administration there's a mouthful no, uh, <laughs> national hurricane center i sound like i'm a weatherman now uh, and while i can't predict uh weather um i'm better at the gas uh, side of things uh rick the reality is that uh, that too could uh, keep prices fairly high 
if we have an unstable season that knocks out a good number of the refineries in the U.S. temporarily while the hurricanes pass over. And, of course, other factors. Venezuelan oil may come to a standstill as a result of the crisis there. Uh, we don't know much about what's happening with OPEC, but I tend to think that uh, a number of players have left uh, or may decide not to continue producing as much oil in the U.S. in the second half of 2017 as they did in this half uh, up to the first six to seven months. That could mean less oil and that could keep uh, prices up. But generally speaking, after September 15th, you do see a two or three cent a liter decrease as refineries shift over to the cheaper to make uh, winter blends of gasoline, and that stays with us until April 15th of 2018. You've identified a number of uh, indicators. You can really realize the volatility of, uh, you know, if, oh, yeah. one, if one, of, one of those things goes down or goes up or, or however it's it's impacted, it, it can and certainly affect dollar. prices. Yeah, the Canadian dollar, too, has a factor in this. Yeah. The week, the week, a weak Canadian dollar may sound great for exports, not so great if you're buying gasoline or any other commodity. So it uh, it's really, uh, you know, a baker's dozen. Uh, a lot of moving parts here, but uh, we try to assemble it for people to know where the best gas prices are and at the same time give everyone a bit of a modicum of uh, uh, of understanding where prices are going. And they can follow me at uh, hashtag at uh, Dan, Dan, Dan uh, Gas Buddy Dan, sorry. Uh, so that's at Gas Buddy Dan. Every day I put out uh, hashtag uh, Hamilton, and that gives you pretty much an idea where gas prices are heading a day or two ahead. Best estimate on where they'll be at the end of the summer before that cheaper winter fuel comes about? Yeah, I think we're going to be looking at uh, probably another three cent increase uh, on average, probably till about uh, the first, second, and third week of September. After that, things will start to calm down a little bit, and uh, we'll be back pretty much to where we are today. But of course, uh, you know, always good advice here uh, uh, for everyone is to buy their gasoline late in the afternoon or and into the evening or on weekends. That's when uh, those discounts and retailers are willing to beat each other over the head and knock down their retail margins. And uh, that's 10 cents a litre in your pocket, not someone else's. Good tips. Ding, thanks for the time today. Hey, Rick, always a pleasure. Good talking to you. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.